special welcome. For those of you who I don't know, uh, my name is Seth Castleman. Gil asked me to facilitate the group this evening. Um, last time I was with you, it was in the, in the old site, so it's nice to be in your new home. I've um, been practicing uh, the Vipassana tradition for just about 10 years now. Been teaching for about half of that amount of time. I presently work primarily in the prison system, teaching meditation, anger management, stress reduction, spiritual practice to incarcerated men and women, um, primarily in the state system here in California, as well as in the county jail system, um, but also teach in other settings as well. Anybody have any questions either about the meditation instructions, their meditation experience tonight, um, their spiritual practice in general? So tell me if I have this right. The question is that in observing your thoughts as your meditation practice develops over some amount of time, you're noticing that the length of the thought, generally speaking, seems to be shortening. And that while it used to be a thought would sort of um, carry itself for X amount of time, since we're in the peninsula, um, it now carries itself half X or some portion of X. Okay. Um, is that normal? Uh, which is perhaps the most common uh, question for beginning meditators is to describe something and then say, is that normal? Or the other version of that is, am I crazy? Um, it is very normal. It is also um, definitely a sign of good practice. Um, there are a couple of pieces uh, that I'd like to point out there. Um, this practice that we're doing together and the spiritual path, all-encompassing, is the practice of awareness, of bringing more awareness or presence um, to reality. So if the mind is thinking, um, we want to be aware that the mind is thinking. Birds fly, fish swim, the mind thinks. Um, and as this guy once said, uh, the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. And for most of us, through most of our lives, we live with the mind as our master. We have a thought, and whoosh, we're there, we're doing it, we're moving in that direction. Uh, 
energy follows attention. Where the attention is, your energy goes. So where the mind takes its attention, there you are right behind it. It's like uh, um, the little kid or the, the man or woman being dragged along by the dog on the sidewalk in suburbia. Um, that's the way we are with our mind most of the time. You also may have noticed that um, uh, telling your mind what to do doesn't help very much. Um, and strangely enough, the power of awareness is the one thing that actually really works. That in bringing some quality of presence, turning the light on, um, is actually what gives some sense of control or power uh, or empowerment. Um, and this quality of awareness or presence that I'm speaking of has two different pieces of it. Eventually we'll get back to the question of the length of thought. For me, the, the, the metaphor that I've thought of more and more um, when, I, when I teach or practice awareness is that there are two pieces of it. There's a mental component and there's a, an emotional or a heart component. And the mental component is reflective. It's like the still forest pool reflecting the image of the moon. Last night we had a full moon. And if you looked in a pool of water, you'd, you'd see it quite clearly. And if there was no ripples, if there was no wind, it might even be hard to tell if it was the moon or if it was the reflection of the moon. So the mental quality of awareness sees things just as they are. And for a mirror or for a pool of water to reflect things just as, as they are, it needs to actually touch. It needs to contact, bless you. Um, so it needs to actually meet the object whether it's paying attention to the breath, whether it's paying attention to our thoughts, or whether it's paying attention to the person who's standing in front of us. For us to have awareness of what they're saying, of the person that, that we're standing with, we need to actually meet them with awareness. For there to be clear awareness or a reflective quality that's to be trusted, um, there also can't be much in between the object and the mind which sees the object. So we want there to be direct contact, and we don't want it to be colored or blurred by the mind. So if there's fog between the object and the mirror, it doesn't make a very good reflection. Or if the mirror is tainted or uh, coated with something, it also doesn't make a very good reflection. So the mental quality of awareness needs to be very clear, and it needs to be in direct contact with the object. The emotional or the heart quality needs to be embracing. And if the, if the mind, if the image that I use is the still pool of water in the forest reflecting the moon, and you can use an image that works for you, the heart quality is that of, um, of a mother, of an archetypal mother. And when the child runs crying to the mother, um, weeping with a broken toy, the mother just opens her arms and embraces the child. And the mother's arms are always big enough to hold the child and to hold the pain and suffering or the joy and celebration that the child arrives with. So awareness needs to be big enough, but also embracing. The mother doesn't reflect the, mother's, uh, the child's pain from a distance or say, why don't you sit over there and we'll talk about it. No, the mother says, oh, please. So awareness has a lap and has arms um, and is willing to, to meet whatever we happen to see. Oh, anger. 
There you are again. Please. Seth's anger. Or, oh, fear. Here you are. In the Buddhist cosmology, there's a, a character named Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. Most uh, different spiritual traditions across the world have some um, character or image which is similar to this in some way or another. Kuan Yin, as the archetypal mother or the goddess of compassion, in the Chinese tradition, she has a thousand eyes and a thousand arms. And the thousand eyes are to see all the suffering that's out there in the world. And this is the reflective quality. The ability to see things just as they are. And Kuan Yin never shuts her eyes. And the thousand arms are to embrace all the beings that she sees who suffer. And yet Kuan Yin, they don't talk about her hands. They talk about her arms. Now we know as parents, often when the child runs to us, we get caught in, oh, here, eat some food and you'll forget about it. Or why are you worrying about that? It's just a silly toy. But when, when, we're, on, when we're in our archetypal mother, we don't have that tendency to try to change it or fix it. We're able to just sit there and say, oh, I'm so sorry. Because to the child, the broken toy seems like the most terrible thing in all the world. So these are the, the two qualities of our awareness, is being able to see the thought as it arises and to also to embrace it and not hold it at a distance or judge it. You might have noticed with your, old, with your own children or just people in your life that when they're in a lot of struggle or torment, um, you might have noticed this with yourself as well, that really what we want is to be seen is to be accepted, is to be loved, is to be acknowledged. We want that as well when we're in joy or when we've succeeded at something. We really just want to be seen and acknowledged and loved. And when that happens, we stop asking. It's something I discovered when I first started working in the prison system. Um, I'm now mostly here in California with adults, but when I started a couple of years ago, it was with juveniles in New York City. And I first walked in, um, and I had come, I was straight out of Asia. I had done a year of meditation practice, partly as a monk and partly as a layperson in Asia. I had come back and was still sitting quite a bit at IMS, um, doing some long retreats, and was then in New York where I was in the juvenile justice system. So I was good. I mean, I'd been meditating for years now. I took this long trip. I, I clearly had something to offer them, and I was in my, my peaceful place, and nothing could throw me. And, and I spent a long time coming up with all the curriculum that I was going to teach them and how we were going to do this meditation and this yoga. And very quickly, um, I had to throw it all to the wind. Uh, and any time I had any sort of agenda that was other than just them, I was sunk. They could care less about my meditation or my yoga. What they cared about was whether I cared about them and whether I laughed at their jokes and whether I was happy to see them and whether I would tell the staff to shut up when they were interrupting the kids. Um, and that it was through the caring and the connection that any sort of teaching that might happen would come. Because really what they wanted was to be embraced metaphorically and perhaps literally. And I, I think that's true for all of us, and I think that's true for our thoughts and our experiences as well. 
I saw it so clearly with these kids who had been shot at and neglected and raped and locked up and told they were wrong, and some of them had been in the system since the day they were born. It was so uh, blatantly obvious with them. Uh, might be more subtle, but no less true with the rest of us. Uh, and that we stop asking, we stop craving, we stop wanting when it's provided. Uh, when we find that water in this great desert of existence. And strangely enough, the same thing is true for our thoughts. Um, in the classic story of the Buddha's enlightenment, when he's sitting under the tree, um, which in 99.9% of the ways is no different than you sitting under the roof of this building. It wasn't somehow that he sat down and that was going to be the time. He was just sitting. It was just like any other sitting. The only thing that was different was the quality of mind that he brought to the experience in that particular moment. And the quality of mind that he did bring was awareness where he named things as they were. So he was tormented by thoughts and he was tormented by anger and he was tormented by fear and by greed and by frustration and his shopping list and his kids and the car repairs and the mortgage. He was tormented by all of it. But as each one of these thoughts or feelings or sensations or knee pain came up, he saw them for what they were. He reflected it, and then he named it and embraced it. Oh, it's you, anger. Nice to see you. And the little demon of anger, or the little thought of anger, was just like those kids in juvenile hall. All they really wanted was to be named and seen. And then... Whew. So there's something about the reflective quality and the embracing quality that takes the charge out of it. And we'll notice, as you said, that our thoughts don't quite have the same power or the same length or the same strength. It's not to say we can't think, which can be a common misconception of meditation that, well, if I keep meditating, I won't be able to think anymore. Um, you can think, but you have a choice whether you want to think or not. The empowerment that comes from meditation is the fact that our mind is extremely fractured you take a light and you send it through a prism or you send it through lots of little holes, the light will go in many directions, but none of those lights will be particularly powerful. That's the way our mind is most of the time. We have this thought and that thought and that thought and that thought and that thought. And what meditation does is actually unifies the beams of light. It unifies the thought. So when you put it to something, it's actually extremely powerful. We're only using something like between 7 and 12% of our brain we're using so little, we might as well try to put as much of that in one place as we possibly can. Um, so when we bring the awareness to our thought, we then have some choice about whether we actually want to keep going with it or not. Um, it's like checking the train schedule rather than just jumping on any old train and riding it. And then when you get off in uh, Oakland and you realize actually you wanted to go to Daly City. No. When you start to get on the train, you realize this isn't necessarily the train I want to get on back to the station. Um, the last thing I'll say about awareness. Awareness is something that works in reverse. You move awareness back in time. So you can probably think of somebody in your life who's a fairly unaware person. 
somebody you work with, somebody in your family, somebody who does things um, that are quite destructive or hurtful or unskillful to the people around them and just doesn't seem to be aware of it. Perhaps they do one particular thing. Um, and despite the fact that it's clearly one of the worst things this person possibly could do in the world short of um, killing small dogs, um, they are completely oblivious to it. Yeah, we all have somebody in mind. We all have a behavior in mind. So this is what we call the never category, where the person is never aware of the fact that they're doing it, this particular behavior or tendency. I won't mention the fact that we all have these as well. That's beside the point, really. Um, the second stage of awareness is the much later stage, where we become aware of a pattern, a habitual pattern that we're falling into much after the fact. This is where the classic um, phone call to the ex comes into the category of, where two or three years after the relationship is over, you call and say, geez, I really see how uh, all those times you were telling me that I was unkind or I lied or whatever. You were right, and I'm sorry. Um, I'm sure most of us have either had that phone call at some point in our history or received that phone call at some point in our history, or to a relative or to a friend, where long after the fact, we're aware of the fact that we were getting caught in something. So this is the much later, which is clearly better than the never. Uh, much later often happens on the deathbed, or with a near-death experience, or with some transition in our lives. Um, moving it further back is a little bit later, where awareness comes after the fact but it doesn't have to wait four or five years or till we die. For myself, I notice often when I get in a difficult, conflicted situation with somebody, uh, if I get angry at somebody, it's when I leave and I get in the car and I'm driving home that I think, you know what, I didn't need to let myself say that. I didn't need to treat that person that way. But somehow I couldn't stop it or I wasn't aware of what I was getting caught up in in the moment. But by leaving the situation, I was able to reflect on it and get some perspective that awareness came in. This is an, an important place to start to see how effective leaving the situation can be. And for me, often I'll find I'll take a bathroom break in the middle of a difficult situation. That just by leaving for a moment, I can bring a quality of awareness that I couldn't bring in the midst of the situation. Um, and by creating some time away, I actually can bring a higher quality of awareness. So we have never, we have much later, we have right after. We then have in the midst of the experience, which is what happens in our meditation practice. Okay, first it's, so let's, let's translate the whole thing into meditation. First it's, you know, when you get home, you realize, boy, I was thinking about that all through meditation, whatever the that was. And then it's as soon as the bell rings, so that would be much later. As soon as the bell rings, you realize you were just lost in thought for the last 30 minutes. That's right after. Then there's during where in the midst of the thought, or in the midst of getting carried away with whatever carried you away in this particular moment of meditation, you realize, oh, I'm thinking. Or in the midst of the conflict with somebody, you realize that you're caught up in some amount of fear or anger or wanting. This is a difficult place, but this is the most empowering place where you actually can change things. Is that by bringing the awareness there, you actually have the possibility of choice. Do I continue, or do I shift and return to the breath? Do I continue yelling at this person, or do I try to do something different? 
one of the things we teach in the in the prison, um, both with the prisoners and also with the guards, um, is how to de-escalate situations. Uh, we're all pretty good at escalating situations, and learning how to de-escalate can be a particularly tricky one. Um, in the first class that I taught by myself, uh, this was a few years ago in juvenile hall. It was with a group of girls. There were eight girls. I walked into the class and I had, as you can tell, I'm not somebody that usually prepares talks. But for this particular occasion, I decided to really prepare what I was going to do for this hour because I, I really wanted it to go well. And it was the first time I was teaching a class by myself for the juvenile justice system. And I was really excited about it. And I planned out the yoga session and I planned out the meditation center and I, section. And I, I walked in there and I had my notes and there were eight girls. I figured, you know, how tough can eight girls be? Uh, they were 14 to 16, and they were typical of the New York City juvenile justice system, which meant 98.5% of them were either black or Latino. Um, and they likely came from the same three or four neighborhoods um, where most of the arrests happened. Um, and one girl uh, clearly um, was in control, was the girl who was kind of running the class. She was the oldest, from the looks of it, about 16. And all the other girls kind of looked at her. And when I started, I introduced my... As soon as I walked in, she said, where's Mr. G? Mr. G is the fellow who I started the organization with. And I said, well, actually, um, uh, Mr. G couldn't come today, so I'm, I don't want you. I want Mr. G. Uh, I said, well, maybe he'll be back next week, but let's see if we can make do with this. And I sat down and I talked for a little bit and I said, we're going to do some yoga. And I stood up and seven of the girls started to stand up. And the one girl whose name is Marta didn't stand up, this same girl. And the other seven girls sat back down. And I looked at Marta and I said, so are we going to do yoga? She says, I want Mr. G. So we kind of got into it and we, uh, some dialogue went back and forth that really doesn't need to be repeated in, uh, in a Dharma center. Um, and it really started to escalate. And I realized my decision right then and there was, okay, for the group to continue, we have to sort of, you know, take out the bad apple, do some surgery, excavate the situation. Um, and I stood up, and I took a step forward, and I said, Marta, I, I, at one point I said, Marta, if this continues, you're going to have to leave. And then it continued, I stood up, I took a step forward, I said, Marta, you're going to have to leave the class. And Marta stood up, and she took a step forward, and she said, Seth, you're going to have to leave the class. <laughs> I thought, well, what do you do with that? I took a step forward. She took a step forward. Pretty soon, we were nose to nose. Now, clearly, I was, and I, of course, but this was a not till later realization, not till much later, was I was really identified with the program that I had brought in. And it's like a teacher who cares more about their lesson plan than about the kids in the class. Uh, and we all get into the situation at times when the one person on the, you know, on the work committee or the work group is getting in the way of the way I think it's supposed to go or the way I know it's supposed to go. The worst case scenario is when you're right. Because then you have justification for really feeling strongly about what you believe in. If we were wrong about it, I mean, if we were like those stupid people who are wrong all the time, it would be much easier to let go of our opinions. The problem is, is that we're right most of the time. So I was caring a lot more about the program that I had brought in than I was caring about Marta. Um, so we got nose to nose. 
And it was the closest that I had ever felt like getting in a fist fight since I was probably about 12 years old. Um, and the three thoughts that went through my mind, I think there were three. One was, my goodness, you know, if we get in a fist fight now, this is going to be the end. You know, I'm my first class teaching by myself. Here I am in juvenile hall. I've gotten this far, and this is going to be it. You know, at the ripe old age that I'm at, you know, that's going to be the end of my career. Uh, the second thought was, what was the second thought? Um, the third thought was, I think I can take her. <laughs> um, I was very identified with resolving the situation. I was very identified in being right. I was also, I was very much in the situation that many of us get into as parents or teachers or supervisors or correctional officers where I'm in a position of power and I need to save face and I'm not going to admit that I was wrong. I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to kind of let what I'm holding on to go. So what do you do with that situation? How does Sharon and Arafat get out of the situation that they're in. The interesting thing is we never go from a bad word to a nuclear war as a one-two. There's always all these, I stand up, she stands up, I step forward, she steps forward, she calls my mother something, I call her mother something. Not that I called her mother anything, but that there's those little escalations that happen. Um, and that eventually we're at nuclear war. And I, at that moment, had no idea how we were going to get out of that situation. Uh, for me to just kind of slink away and sit back down, I would have then, I felt like I would have lost control of the class for the rest of the time. Um, it was actually Marta who de-escalated de the situation, and I don't think she even realized how skillfully she was doing it. There we were, almost touching nose to nose. We each kind of clenching our fists, and she said, why don't you lead us in the meditation? All along, what Marta wanted was for us to meditate and not do yoga. She didn't like the yoga. And Soren, Mr. G, always started with the meditation. Um, usually, there's some underlying desire that people have that hasn't been clearly stated, that the other person doesn't realize, oh, if I gave you this, then you'd feel okay. So that was one piece of it. The second piece was she was giving me something. She was allowing me to stay in the teacher role and to facilitate the situation. What she gave was a doorway out. We had escalated, and usually the only way is for one person to fall or to jump or to be pushed off and to fall on their face. And she gave a doorway out where I could walk through and still be in the position that I felt identified with being in. So I thought about it for a minute, and I said, okay. And we both sat back down. Neither one of us turned our back on the other one. We kind of backtracked. And we sat down, and we did the meditation. The one that I usually start with, um, with the kids, well, we can do it briefly. Um, you just shut your eyes. You can sit however you're sitting. It's perfectly fine. And uh, you can't move your lips, and you can't move your fingers. Just count how many times the bell rings.
holding that number in your mind. Finding a place in the body where you feel the breathing. Rising and falling or in and out. And count the same number of breaths as you counted bells. In, out, one. In, out, two. Take however long you need. your number, you can slowly open your eyes. We did that meditation, though we sat in silence for a while longer. And as soon as there was silence, I had that perspective to be able to bring awareness to what had happened. And the first thing I got was, I have to apologize to her. And the second thing I got was, I really don't want to apologize to her. Um, and what actually uh, um, convinced me that I should apologize to her was when I realized this will probably be the first time that anyone in my position has ever apologized to her. So when the meditation finished, after about four or five minutes, I, we opened our eyes and I turned to Marta and I said, Marta, I'm really sorry that I got angry at you. Uh, I didn't appreciate and I, what, how you were acting, um, but I had no right to, to yell at you. Um, and I was struck when we started the meditation how significantly, how quickly uh, my whole body energy changed from being there with her to then just sitting. And how much it changed just by getting out of the situation. And bringing awareness to what my experience was. Because when I was standing there with her, I had very little experience what could be called in the vertical plane, what's happening on this axis. All my awareness was on the horizontal plane and was fixated on her. And it's a, it's a feedback loop. I send out energy and it comes back and it intensifies. Sort of like if you push on somebody and they push back, it actually makes it easier. If you physically push on somebody and they push back, it actually, they do have to work for you. And it's sort of a charge. You get engaged. Or if you push on somebody and they sort of lean back, they make you push more because they're moving away. But if you move the awareness out of the horizontal plane, so to speak, into the vertical plane, you're turning the light of awareness inward. Rather than seeing what they're doing and uh, creating the feedback loop, you're just being aware of what's happening right now. With the breath, it's usually the difference between an in-breath and an out-breath. If you get scared, <gasps> it's an in-breath. When babies cry, <gasps> it's an in-breath. Biologically, it actually comes from and it stimulates the part of the nervous system which says fight or flight, which says either jump in or move away. The out-breath, on the other hand, is actually the exact opposite. Where you actually begin to come on 
to the vertical plane. So during the meditation, I realized I needed to apologize to her. I apologized. We then actually, to finish the story, we went around and did a bit of a check-in. And uh, each of the girls kind of spoke a little bit. And I didn't think Marta was going to say anything. She, um, she said, I'm fine. Then paused just long enough that it seemed like it was time to move on to the next group, to, to the next person. She said, eh, it's been kind of a tough day. And that was it. I was just about to move on to the next person. She said, I broke up with him today. And from there out flowed this whole story about this boy in juvie who she had been involved with and she had broken up with this very day and how he had still been in a gang, he was in for murder, he was in still a lot of trouble, um, his friends were smuggling him in drugs and he was still doing drugs even inside juvenile hall and she and that he was she was really trying to help him and help him study for his GED but he had stopped studying and so she finally had to leave him because it was turning into a bad influence on her and that led into the story about how the last four or five boys that she'd been involved with were always getting into trouble and she was always trying to help all of them and trying to get them on the right track and it never worked as she was saying this the the guard came in and gave me a piece of paper to sign for the class and she stopped when I started to sign the paper and there was a pause and I said, as I was signing the paper, I said, you're one of the kindest people I've met in a long time. From how she was talking about how much she was trying to help these different boys. And I finished signing the paper and I put the pen down and I looked up and Marta was doing this thing that I have only seen in television sitcoms. She went like this. Who are you talking to? And I said, I'm, I'm talking to you. She said, what did you say? I had to think about it a minute because I just sort of said it off the top of my head. I said, I think I said you're one of the kindest people I've met in a long time. She said, oh, next person. That was all she said. At the end of the class, whenever, when we had finished, um, she came up to me and the girls often come up and give, give a hug or which is kind of a little shoulder. You know, you kind of put your hand around the shoulder and you kind of bum shoulders. And uh, she came up and uh, she, she shook my hand, she did a handshake, she put her hand on my shoulder and she, when she was doing this she leaned right next to my ear and she said, that was the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. And then she pulled back and so everyone else could hear, so everyone else could hear, she said, you can come back next time. And she walked out. I was really struck how she had to still kind of keep her keep her posture, keep her position, just as I had to keep mine, she had to keep hers. As the guard was walking me out, I asked about Marta, and he said, you don't know her? And I said, no, I've never met her before. And she, he, he said, but you haven't seen her photo? And I said, no, why? She said, He's been on, she's been on the cover of every single New York newspaper, for, on and off, uh, over the last year. Uh, when Marta was 12 and a half, she was in the back seat of a cab with another member of the Bloods gang, and they were robbing the cab driver and Marta had the gun and she held it to the cab driver's head and when the cab driver started to get out of the cab she said if you move I'll shoot you and he started to get out of the cab and she shot him and killed him um, Marta's now now she's almost 18 um, she was arrested when she was 14 um, And I was and have been ever since eternally grateful that my entire first interaction with her, I worked with her on and off for two years, 
some points I was seeing her twice a week. Um, my entire first interaction with her was before I knew who she was, uh, before the story had been created. Um, because the stories that we create about people or the stories we create about ourselves are very much that fog that comes between the mirror and our experience or is the color which we add to the mirror. Um, and in the experience with her, at one point I experienced real anger and frustration and a little while later real uh, joy and appreciation um, because there hadn't been a whole story built up already. And in some ways I feel like I've never really seen Marta as clearly as I saw her in that first experience, both her most difficult side and also her most uh, caring side. So the awareness moves back. Uh, we see things never, we see things long after the fact, we see things just after, we see things during. And we try to de-escalate what's happening during our meditation or during our lives. One of the reasons why it's so difficult to de-escalate in the middle of a situation of great anger or conflict is that our age-old patterns of response get triggered. Why am I doing this again? I thought, you know, I've been an angry person all my life. Do I have to keep doing this? Why do I keep giving in whenever I get pressured? We have these habitual patterns uh, that we fall into. And in the midst of the situation, it's very hard to change them. And we often add on top of that some level of judgment about, you know, can I be over this already? I'm 49 years old and I'm still acting this way. These were the things that kept us alive when we were children. These defense mechanisms that we now hate so dearly and love to hate. These were in fact the very same things that when we were children enabled us to live in a difficult world, in a difficult society, in a difficult family, and protected us and literally metaphorically but also literally kept us alive. And when we realize that, in a deep and sincere way, we can't do anything else but honor and appreciate and bow to these neurotic sides of ourselves. And say, oh right, you're six years old. Thank you. And these defense mechanisms that come up, they seem so silly for a 29-year-old or a 39-year-old or a 69-year-old. But when we were six, this is what we needed. Uh, a soldier wears his armor on the outside. A knight in shining armor has the heavy protection and the shield and the sword because they feel soft and weak on the inside. Like a clam or like a crab with their hard protection. A warrior, on the other hand, when you picture a kung fu warrior in a movie, he or she wears only a gi and carries nothing or maybe a simple stick. Why? Because they have strength on the inside. And from that inner strength can come this warmth and caring and can be embracing even of their enemy. The Dalai Lama's now famous line, the Chinese, my friends, the enemy. He can embrace them because he knows he has enough inner strength that they can never beat him. This is the empowerment we come into with awareness. 
by seeing things as they truly are, by connecting to our vertical axis, by finding our own inner peace, it actually becomes our strength, just as the strength of bamboo is the space in the middle. So we find it on the meditation cushion, we find it in the woods, we find it in in deep love. We practice it and we cultivate it. It's like a muscle. It's not of some uh, uh, aspiration we make. Yes, I'm going to be a strong, spiritual-centered person. And that's enough. Just as I'm going to be a, a muscular person isn't aspiration enough. Nor is buying the exercise videotape enough. Buying the meditation book doesn't work either. We've been practicing the muscle of hatred and of fear and of greed for how long? It's a big, big muscle. The only thing that changes that is no longer exercising it and beginning with that little baby muscle of something else. So we practice it on the cushion and then we bring it to bear when we're in the midst of conflict. So that when we're standing there in our armor, in our defense mechanisms, acting like a six-year-old with our anger or our fear, can we possibly, in that moment of awareness, actually put it down. Now the interesting thing is, those defense mechanisms that we got when we were children, that we keep using, they sincerely believe that beneath them is a little six-year-old boy or a little six-year-old girl. And if they were to put, if they were to stop, that we would be deeply wounded and killed. So the question is, can we find that inner strength that says, you know what? I am strong enough. I no longer need to act this way. I no longer need to fall into these same patterns. There's something beneath it that actually can stand on its own. Thank you very much. I wasn't able to do that with Marta. Eventually, as we move the awareness further back, we don't get ourselves in those situations. And the next stage before, in the midst of the unskillful action, is between the emotion and the action. This is a very important one, particularly for people in prison, including all of us in the prisons of our own lives. So much of the time, we are unable to see the separation between having a certain emotion and acting upon that emotion. Yes, goddammit, I'm angry, and I'm going to let you know about it. Well, there's actually a difference between feeling angry and yelling. Just as we all know, there's a difference between feeling like you want to kill somebody and killing somebody. And there's a difference between desiring to eat potato chips and actually eating potato chips. The place of awareness in our habitual patterns is being able to separate those two so that then there's some amount of choice. Okay, am I going to eat the potato chip or am I not going to eat the potato chip? I can go either way on this one. Eh, I'll eat it today. Thank you. Am I going to speak for my anger or am I going to sit in my anger but hold my peace? Eh, I'm going to hold my peace today. Or, you know what? I'm going to yell. At least we made a choice there and at least it was conscious. I'm going to move it back a couple more and if you lose the thread here, that's okay kind of cover the important ones, but I want to cover the last few, moving it back. Before the emotion, there's actually two or three more stages. 
So there's the angry action, there's the angry feeling which led to the action, there's then the result of the actions, a break in the relationship or hurting someone or hurting yourself. What triggered the emotion? I'm going to work forward now. So I'm going to start from the very beginning. Somebody says something to you. Somebody says something to me in a work situation, a relationship. Somebody speaks something. There's a sound. The sound comes from their mouth to my ears. In bare experiential terms, all that happens is a sound. Somebody that I work with tells me I did a lousy job on a project that I'm working on. I hear that. Now, for me, a helpful way to remember that it's just a sound is if I imagine my Russian friend sitting next to me who doesn't speak any English. To them, there'll be nothing. It's just sound. Although there might be tone of voice that they pick up on from the person who's saying it, pretty much it's just a sound. With that sound and sandwiched to it is a feeling tone. It's a pleasant sound. It's an unpleasant sound. It's a neutral sound. And it might vary between people. So if you take an image, this is a fairly neutral looking object. But you might find these flowers quite pleasant. If there was some garbage here on the ground, you might find it unpleasant. The same with certain sounds. If somebody were to say to you, you look lovely today, that would be pleasant. If somebody says you're wearing that, it would be unpleasant. If somebody says it's Thursday, it would be fairly neutral. So the experience, the sound, and the quality of the sound are pretty much sandwiched together. Where the ball starts rolling, where the snowball starts getting bigger, is that that feeling tone triggers a whole spiral of story and emotion. Ugh. Back to the at work situation person I'm working with tells me I did a lousy job. He always tells me I do a lousy job. I feel lousy. The feeling lousy feeds, I'm never good at my job. Feeds feelings of unworthiness, feelings of frustration, of anger. I never can get anything done around here. People don't give me the support. Really, I'm not doing a very good job because this person doesn't help me. In fact, my mother never helped me. I never did a good job with my mother. My mother never loved me. She loved my sister more than she loved me. So it quickly spirals or snowballs from the very specific experience to something much, much bigger and all the emotions that come with it. That emotions of anger and frustration and worthlessness then lead to the action. We not only can cut it between the emotion of anger and speaking angrily, we can also cut it before then. We can actually cut it from hearing the sound and the unpleasantness to between there and creating a story, and between the story and creating an emotion. The further back we bring the awareness, the more control we have, the more power, the more discipline, the more peace and possibility we have. For example, you hear certain sounds and it doesn't trigger something. If you hear a sound a few times, it triggers you less and less. If right now I were to bang on the bench here, it would make a sound and it might cause some surprise. If I did it again, it would cause a little less. After the 10th or 11th time, you would have conditioned yourself, okay, it's just a sound and it wouldn't scare you anymore. There would be nothing inherently different about the sound, but you were making some choice in the matter. It wasn't scaring you. Or it wasn't, maybe there was a different reaction. Maybe it was causing more irritation at me. You turn the attention from the sound to that guy who's doing it. 
in all these different places in the process, it's merely a matter of awareness, of reflecting clearly what our experience is, like the moon reflecting in the still forest pool, and embracing it. Oh, this is what's happening. It could be embracing it, oh, it's an unpleasant sound. It could be embracing it, oh, I'm feeling angry. It could be embracing it, oh, I'm yelling at somebody or hurting somebody. It could be embracing it, that was really not a good meeting. I didn't do it very well. But in all cases, there's arms that are big enough to hold it. sit for a few minutes. announcements this evening. Guess not. Um, I promise I won't take uh, 45 minutes again if anybody had one more question. Legs all numb. Um, the question was when your legs fall asleep in the first few times sitting. Um, I hate to tell you this, but my legs still fall asleep. Uh, so it may or may not go away. Um, a, few, a few thoughts though. Different postures definitely can help. Sitting in a chair. Um, if you raise your buttocks up a little higher so that your knees can be... The more you, excuse me. The more you can get your legs directly on the ground that can help by actually sitting on the front of the cushion so that your knees are down, which can be easier if you kind of prop your legs up. Excuse me, if you're propping your, your bottom up, that can be helpful. The other thing is it's really okay, excuse me, to move if necessary. Um, again, it's not uh, what you do as much as bringing some awareness to it. 
So if you decide to move, it's not that you're removing, you're moving out of reaction, but that there's some conscious decision of, I'm going to move, and you keep the awareness fairly steady as you're moving. So you're shifting the leg, and your awareness is there, and then you return to stillness, and you bring your attention back to the breath. So if you need to shift your posture or straighten your legs out for a while, um, the thing that I often do when, I, when my legs fall asleep is I'll stand up, and I'll do some time of standing meditation, let the circulation come back in, and then I'll uh, sit back down. Please. It's a realistic view of things. Yeah. If you sit long enough, your legs will certainly fall asleep. Uh-huh. As one fellow said, the worst part about your legs falling asleep during the day is that they'll be up all night. <laughs> There's um, some material out um, by the Donna Baskets about the prison project, if anyone has interest in picking up material. And There's also a third Donna Basket tonight um, specifically for the prison project, if people have an interest in supporting the practice that we're doing being taken uh, to, uh, to other places. Um, this is specifically for two uh, women's penitentiaries in the Central Valley, uh, as well as a county jail in the Central Valley. Starting tomorrow, I'll be at San Quentin and uh, Marin County Jail. So the program is starting to expand. We just got news there's some possibility. We do a lot of work with the correctional officers as well. There's some possibility in the next year that our program will be required for all um, sheriff's deputies that work in county jails throughout the state, um, that this program would actually be a requirement for them, which would be quite a coup d'etat. So if you have any interest, please take some material, um, pass it on to other people who might be interested in such a program, um, as well as people who have the means to support such a program. And drive home safely. Thank you.